Hello, this is Jim Drake, and I'm the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now... Here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome to our first episode of 2018. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak. This is On Screen and Beyond, episode 483, the show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with the guests from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, Jim Drake is going to be joining us. He was the director of The Golden Girls. He also directed New Heart, Dave's World, Night Court, Give Me a Break, The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, and on and on and on. And he was also the director of Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. Got a lot to talk about with Jim Drake coming up in a few minutes right here on On Screen and Beyond. Of course, we've got our Remake Madness and everything else. So let's get right into it. It's time for Remake Madness on On Screen and Beyond. Remake Madness, the remake of Death Wish, starring Bruce Willis, will be hitting theaters on March 2nd. Elizabeth Shue co-stars in that film. And Cliff Method Man Smith has joined the cast of the remake of Shaft alongside Samuel L. Jackson. And you can look for that on June 24th, 2019. And Ryan Reynolds, he's going to be starring in Detective Pikachu. It's a silver screen remake of the popular Pokemon game. That's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, let's head over and find out what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies, it looks like Christine Hendricks is going to be starring in The Strangers as a family on a road trip is terrorized in a mobile home park. That's coming our way on March 9th. And Ryan Gosling will star as Neil Armstrong in First Man, a film that looks at the life of the first astronaut to walk on the moon. And James Franco and Ashton Kutcher will be starring in The Long Home as a young contractor is hired to build a honky-tonk for a man who killed his father. And that's it for upcoming new movies next on On Screen and Beyond. It's time for Sequel City, taking you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming your way as far as sequels right here on On Screen and Beyond. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sequel City, Netflix's Bright with Will Smith has been given the go-ahead for Bright 2, and uh, they're saying that Will Smith will be back. 
And The Incredibles 2 will hit theaters on June 15th. And on November 21st, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Wreck-It Ralph 2 will be hitting theaters. That's it for Sequel City. Coming up next on Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD? TV on DVD, Curb Your Enthusiasm, the complete ninth season, comes to DVD on March 6th with uh, early digital release on June 8th. And Homeland, the complete sixth season, lands on Blu-ray and DVD on February 6th. And on February 27th, you can look for MacGyver Season 1 as it flies into stores. That's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen to Me On, what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD? Movies on DVD, the quirky drama My Art arrives on DVD and Digital HD on January 30th. And on February 27th, the Disney classic Lady and the Tramp returns to Blu-ray and earlier on February 20th on digital. And the star, the animated film, arrives on February 20th. That's it for Movies on DVD. Next on On Screen to Beyond, it's TV and Entertainment Time. TV and Entertainment Time, David Arquette has joined the cast of the new TV comedy pilot called Memphis Fire, which centers around a Memphis Fire Station crew. It's a comedy. And Secrets of the Dead, Scanning the Pyramids, arrives on January 24th on uh, PBS. And you can be looking for that to show you the new void that they discovered in the Great Pyramid and how they did it. And sadly, since our last show here on On Screen and Beyond of 2017, uh, Rosemarie of The Dick Van Dyke Show passed away at the age of 94. And uh, you can go listen to her uh, talk about her life and uh, an amazing woman. And just uh, go back in our uh, past podcasts and uh, you can catch that one. And also Jerry Van Dyke of Coach. He passed away at the age of 86. And that's it for TV and Entertainment Time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's Celebrity Birthdays. <laughs> Celebrity birthdays, well, January 8th, past guest Amber Benson will be turning 41. And on January 8th, Jimmy Page turns 74. On January 10th, Rod Stewart turns 73. January 12th, Rob Zombie turns 53. And on January 13th, Julia Louise Dreyfus turns 57. And on January 14th, it's Faye Dunaway turning 77. That's it for Celebrity Birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, we didn't have any coming in for this week. But if you, a friend or relative, are going to be having a birthday, send me the information in advance at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com, and we will all be wishing you a very happy birthday. And that's it. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, Jim Drake is going to be joining us. And Jim is going to be uh, talking with us about uh, all the things he's done, the different things. And uh, so many other shows he's done, uh, like uh, Night Court and uh, people he's worked with and everything else. Jim Drake, he's next, right here on On Screen and Beyond.
guest today on On Screen and Beyond has been nominated for two Emmys for his work on The Golden Girls and Buffalo Bill. He also directed many other TV shows including Night Court, Give Me a Break, New Heart, Dave's World, The Sweet Life with Zack and Cody, and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. He also directed Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. It's Jim Drake. Jim, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Well, thank you. Now, Jim, there's so much to talk about here. Uh, I, I was looking over your career and, and all the information about you, and uh, you have worked on some amazing shows. But before yeah. we get into certain shows that we'll be picking at, uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you what show or movie that you've worked on has been you, you're most proud of? Ah. Well, there are a couple. One you left out in the introduction. Oh, I left a lot. Uh, but I also got a nomination for, uh, and that was uh, an Emmy nomination. That was SCTV, which was the Canadian series that ultimately NBC picked up, and that's when I got uh, taken up to Toronto to work on it for about a year. And I was very proud because we really were all on our own. It was just the cast and myself, and there was very little input coming in from Los Angeles, as much as they did after the fact when they'd say, well, we should reshoot this because we're not happy with it. And I'd say, you know, we took the set down. I'm sorry, you should have mentioned something before. And in those days, there was no way to stream it to them. So they got the rough cut or whatever it was, but we used that as our excuse for not having to go back and reshoot things. Hmm. But uh, that I was proud of that. And also Mary Hartman, same deal. We were somewhat on our own with very little involvement on the part of the network. It was kind of, you got to do one a day. And Norman Lear could weigh in on things. And occasionally we did reshoot things, but mostly... We were on our own. It was just the cast and myself, and we'd go in in the morning, and by the afternoon we had a half-hour show. And you did, what, over 150 episodes? 150 of those, and then there were more when they did Forever Fernwood, which was without Louise Lasser, the mm-hmm. third season. And at the same time, we then introduced two other spin-offs of that, which was uh, a takeoff on The Tonight Show, which was Fernwood Tonight, and then because it became hard to get, to, to justify that we were bringing in um, big-name actors to be uh, in Fernwood, Ohio. So they had them move out to, like, Glendale or whatever, supposedly, <laughs> uh, Fred Willard and, and Martin Mull, and we called it America Tonight. And with America Tonight, we could get all sorts of... We still had people like Robin Williams and Tom Waits playing characters, mm-hmm. but we could have people... Uh, one of the first was, was <laughs> Charlton Heston, who came in, and uh, Fred Willard, of course, in his inimitable way... Uh, with Heston sitting there uh, on the couch, and he thought it was just a regular interview show and not realizing it was comedy and somewhat improvisational. And Fred turns to him and says, what was your first experience with sex, Charlton? And he turned beet red. (laughs) Oh, jeez. And it was worth it, worth it just for that. But we had people uh, like Robert Conrad, who was that short that we had to find him on the couch. His daughter had talked him into doing the show, and he knew it was a comedy. But he did not want to walk in and stand next to, and they're not big, Fred Willard and Martin Mull, but he did not want to come in and be, you know, sized up against them. And so we had to find him on the couch, bring the audience in, shoot the show, excuse the audience, and then have him uh, leave the set. Wow. Always strange, (laughs) yes. I know. Now, you hear about uh, actors having little things like that where they don't want to look small or short or whatever and uh, did, did you come across that often not a lot there were people I, sometimes you would get an actor or actress saying i'm sorry this is my good side and i'd have to take that into consideration which wasn't usually a problem 
Uh, I always always found it strange because I always thought that, you know, unless somebody was horribly disfigured, I didn't see what the problem was. But they did. Right. Yeah. So you kind of played to that. I can't recall any offhand. And then there were others who were just concerned, again, that they not look partly like the new Hart show. With, and Bob is still alive and still, I'm glad to see, kicking, even though his friend Don Rickles passed away. Mm. Uh, um, uh, Bob was conscious of um, how he looked. And the first 13 episodes I had nothing to do with, I came in when it went to film, were done on tape. And he looked at it and said, I hate it, it's harsh lighting. And he changed it because by then there were only four shows on the air that were done on film, and I was doing three of them. One was New Heart, one was Duck Factory with Jim Carrey, and uh, now I'm trying to, Buffalo Bill was the third, and the fourth was Cheers. And that was it. Everybody had gone to videotape to save money. But in this case, he said, no, I'm not going to you know, stand for this. I want to go back. And he was used to shooting on film. Mm-hmm. He liked that. He liked the fact he could get a break in between scenes. He could have stand-ins because on tape, that usually didn't happen. Yeah. Did you have a preference? Uh, interestingly, I've been asked that often. Uh, a lot of times tape because it was faster. You could set it up. You could correct your mistakes. You could reshoot. And with film, it became a little more difficult to do that. The film look was great, and then when they finally got around to making tape look like film, that was probably the best because you had the speed of tape and you had the look of film, and that, that worked out to the best. Um, they've each had their merits in the sense that, and certainly I said the actors liked their look on film much more so than they did on tape. Mm-hmm. But um, when I did features and so forth, that became the case too. I mean, just the slowness, the pace of that sometimes would kill you. Like you knew that if you had a, and now of course so much is shot on high definition. Right. But in that time, it was a case where you were getting your, breaking it down and getting close-ups and so on. I, I had the pleasure of uh, spending some days with um, uh, some of the the old timers, if you will, and uh, in both on both sides of the camera, if you will. And it was a case where Capra, Frank Capra, had the opportunity to bring him up from Palm Springs. They said he's coming up for the 50th anniversary of it happened one night. And he didn't like the fact he just had a limo driver drive him the last time. So would you um, consider going down and getting him? I said, would I? I said, this is terrific. And it's only about two, two and a half hours from Palm Springs. Los. I made it a four-hour trip. <laughs> I drove over. He didn't know. He was in his 80s now. He didn't really know what was Happened, not, not, he knew what was happening, but he didn't know. He got caught up in it because I was saying, where did you shoot that, and how did you do this, and tell me the story about this, uh, which I had read his biography and so on. And he was the one who kind of came up with this idea of shooting things to make uh, whatever, to save money for Columbia Pictures when he started. What he did was, and talked others into doing it, he would shoot all the setups, meaning like the wide shot, the master. Normally what would happen after that is, you would break everything down, and you'd go in, and you'd get medium shots, and then you'd get close-ups. And that was the tradition, both in silent and in sound films at that stage of the game. Well, he said, let's do the master. Okay, they got the master. Now let's break it. And he said, no, no, let's move over to the next set and shoot the master. Meanwhile, let's get restage everything so when we come back, we'll be ready to shoot the other. And interestingly, it just he cut the whole budget in half by doing that. I don't think it made some of his early sound films are not that great. But nevertheless, he certainly proved that he was conscious of what uh, expenditures were, were going forward. And, and he, he kind of set a tradition there that he worked with subsequently later on. Wow. Now, you mentioned several names of, of very big actors, you know, Robin Williams mm-hmm. and different people. Uh, 
was, of course, being the director, you're more or less more or less in control, I presume. But with somebody like Robin Williams, how did you? Yeah, I mean, it's what great. we hear, with Robin, you weren't. That's a great question because uh, I've got to know him in a number of different things. He played, as I said, on America Tonight, uh, a gigolo. And uh, it was just wonderful. That was really one of the few occasions I worked with him. But what would happen is I'd be over at NBC editing, and the door would swing open, and Robin would come in and say, Jim, listen to this. And then he'd do what he was going to do on The Tonight Show that night and literally do 15 or 20 minutes. And I'd laugh because it was funny. <laughs> and uh, I had friends who had worked with him on uh, Mork and Mindy and so forth. They said, that's it. They'd just leave blank pages where he would fill in. But he'd run the whole gamut of what he was going to do with Carson, and that night I'd go home and watch, and he'd put it on there. He just wanted my feedback and where the laughs were and where they weren't and so forth. And uh, he was he, he was a one-of-a-kind. He truly was an original. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned some of the others. Fortunately, I came right at a, a transition point. Uh, graduated from school in the mid-'60s and started working at uh, CBS in New York and then came out to the West Coast in the mid-'70s. But it was a case where I had the pleasure of working with people who had been in radio and television Early on, so Vern Diamond, who was the technical director for some of the shows I did in New York, had been the technical director for Orson Welles' The War of the Worlds. And I asked him, how was that? You know, what was going on back? Oh, we knew when the police showed up that we had a problem. <laughs> but, yeah, and people like Douglas Edwards, who nobody knows now, but he was the mm-hmm. Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather of his day. Right. And he had a little five-minute show at that point when I was working with him, a news show in the middle of the day for CBS. And I said, how did you come to do it? Because what were you before? He said, I was a newspaper man. I said, how He said, I had a talent nobody else had. I had the ability to look at a script, read it, and then I could look up at the camera and give it back completely without prompter. And they loved that. Otherwise, he said, I was a terrible, you know, newsman. Hmm. But those are the kinds of things. And I had the chance when I went out to the West Coast, Norman Lear put together an opportunity uh, for PBS. They wanted to do great cases of the Supreme Court. It lasted one episode. <laughs> but I did that episode. And the two guys who were playing the judges, I got to work with Henry Fonda and Burt Lancaster. Wow. And I just realized, I looked it up, they had never worked together at any time in their careers. They knew each other, but they had not worked together. Jeez. And uh, it was quite an experience that was. And we also had, uh, you know, other people who were, you know, kind of filling out the roles of the prosecutors and so on. But it never never clicked. A lot of it had to do with what PBS authorized us to do. We wanted to do the Muhammad Ali case, and they came back and said, no, we want to do something about you can't take ten more than $10,000 out of the country. Mm-hmm. And we went, okay, that's pretty dry. And, uh, and, and just to, I don't know if this is uh, R-rated or not um, with your podcast. It's anything can, you uh, want. <laughs> well, Henry, Henry Fonda's story, it was very hot. We were working at what was the old um, um, studios that were PBSs, but they had been around for a monogram had used them back when, if you remember, monogram was kind of a B or a Z Mm-hmm. Uh, rated studio back in its day who did the uh, Bowery Boys and things like oh, that. Yes. So it was really hot, and the lights were hot, and this is about two or three years before Fonda passed away, so he wasn't in the best of health. Fortunately, I knew his wife was like the sister-in-law to a roommate of mine uh, at college, so that was good. I had an in there. But it was an interesting thing in which she kind of watched, Shirley was her name, and she was watching out for him uh, and uh, was very concerned. And at one point, he didn't know his microphone was open. 
and he said, <laughs> and he said, and I'll clean it up a little. He said, "Who the hell do you have to screw to get off this thing?" And I hit the talkback button. I said, "We're all checking, Mister Fonder. We're all checking." Wow! So he laughed. He said, "Okay, kid, let's do it. Let's go. Let's let's finish this up." Wow! You so, must have been excited. He did, and funny, as drawn and withdrawn, and maybe as ill as he was, as soon as the cameras were on and the lights were on, and you know the, the stage manager gave him the cue, he just perked right up, and he was Henry Fonda. Wow! It was terrific. Huh. You must have been excited to work with him. Oh, yes, and Lancaster, too, yeah. who I only really come to appreciate much later. You know, not knowing, I mean, I've seen his films and so forth, but the range he had, and the, the, both those guys were extremely magnetic and dynamic in their personalities, and it was fabulous. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned on Fern, uh, Fernwood Tonight uh, mm -hmm. that it was like a talk show, but um, so it wasn't a scripted show when they when the guys were actually there that you know like you said with Charlton Heston they threw out that question to him and right. he didn't know about any of that uh, he didn't no it wasn't I think they just said he thought and maybe as time went on um, they would let the people in a little more on what the joke was going to be so they could participate and not be caught off guard like that. <laughs> Uh, but we also had Happy Kind, and what I didn't realize, it was, um, the last names escaped me again, Frank, uh, anyway, Duvall, Frank Duvall. Frank um, had been a major composer and conductor for everybody from Frank Sinatra on down, and here he played this goofy guy who was leading the band, and that was one of the reasons we couldn't uh, syndicate the shows and or put them on DVD for a long time, because the music rights were never available. Yeah. Nevertheless, he would have this, you know, and here's this guy had this great, which I didn't realize at the time. I'd just come in and work with him, and how are you doing, Frank? And he, he was normal. But then he'd be this goofy guy who they'd spring jokes on and do things like that. But as to the writing, there was always uh, an idea, there was a script, but they didn't necessarily follow it. You'd have somebody like, um, well, I'm trying to think again, uh, Kenny Mars. Yes. The yes. terrible thing with Kenny is we would rehearse. So we had a, we knew kind of where we were going. It's a little bit like Curb Your Enthusiasm. They do many takes, and they know where it's going. They know what the process is. But anything can jump in. And Kenny would, <laughs> he would, he'd put a half a golf ball with rubber bands around his head on his chin. And then he'd talk about outer space people. And it was hilarious. In rehearsal, and what would happen is we'd then bring the audience in and go to shoot it, and he'd try to remember what he had done. And he'd start fumbling and groping, and it was never spontaneous as he was just off the cuff, mm -hmm. uh, acting like this weird guy that they'd have on that he found somewhere, you know, with, with an aluminum hat out in the woods of Ohio somewhere. Don't you wish but you... it was a fun show. Yeah, don't you wish you would have had cameras running at those times when those people well, are doing stuff Well, we talked about like doing that. that, and we thought, that's not really... If he knows that, then, then he's going to... That'll change. That'll right, change yeah. the dynamic. Yeah. Plus, we would have to go through makeup and everything else, and they were always tweaking lighting, and and audio and so forth. So it was, I did that once on Mary Hartman, uh, and there was a case where Louise would have moods, would have, uh, you know, as, as my wife said, you're, you're one of the 2% two, two of the people in the world who probably could get along with her, but she was so talented, and she was in her own way in those days very lovely and, and uh, truly a, a strange offbeat talent, as I'm sure her uh, ex-husband Woody Allen would say. But the upshot of it was on this one occasion, she was in such a kind of dour mood that um, knowing this and knowing that we might not get another take, I rolled on the dress rehearsal um, because it was, you know, during that day we didn't do a lot of, we 
kind of shot it all in one time and, and did as well as we could and restructured an editing if we needed to. But on this one occasion, I shot the scene uh, with that, and she began complaining when it was all over, saying, I don't know, that doesn't seem right. I want to do it. I don't want to do it again, but I think we should fix it. I think we should come back tomorrow and so forth. And stupidly, I hit the talkback button and said, called on account of rain, shut the lights off. And we shut the lights off. And I went out and I said, that's it. That's the end of my career. I'm getting in the car and driving away. She came running out and said to the technical director, the booth on this case was the old Red Skelton television truck, color truck outside, the uh, hooked up outside stage five. Uh, and she came... I'm look, all I wanted was some direction. All I wanted was some direction. To, and the technical director, well, I think he went that way. <laughs> and that day she called me, and I thought I was going to get a call from Norman Lear, you're fired, you can't behave that way, and so forth. But he called and said, everything's fine, you got it in the can, that's the important thing. And she said, I won't do this again. It was, and she did, but it was a case where she apologized for her behavior as well. Wow. So, Huh. Yeah, uh, these are great stories, oh, great opportunities. I guess. Jeez. I mean, and now you worked with the Golden Girls uh, on the Golden yes. Girls show. Uh, what was it like working with? I mean, all all of those ladies were really something special. They were. Well, I'd worked with uh, Rue McClanahan back in New York on a soap opera called Where the Heart Is, and with Alice Drummond. They were sisters on the show, so I knew her. Uh, Betty, I'd never worked with. B, my wife knew from working with her as Maud on All in the Family. My wife was the line producer on the show. Oh. Uh, I've got to be honest. Uh, well, also, I got in trouble initially. Well, let's start off. The first three episodes were done by a mentor of mine, a guy named Paul Bogart. When I first moved out to the West Coast, they said we're going to do a show called Mary Hartman, and I'd done the pilot of 19, uh, 17, uh, 1974, but they said it's not going to go till November. We're going to start shooting again. So would you mind filling in as an associate director? This guy hasn't done TV in about 10 or 15 years. And I went, oh, boy, I'm going to have to carry this guy as the associate director. We'll pay as a director, but you would be his associate director. Well, that was Paul Bogart, and it was a master class. I mean, I learned so much in the 12 or 13 episodes I did with him. And then I started Mary Hartman. But the story with Paul was that he was then hired to do Golden Girls. This is some years later. We did the pilot for Alice, and I did a couple of episodes of that. And when he did Golden Girls, I was in Europe when he started, and I got a phone call from him. He said, Jim, I'm leaving the show. I said, what's that? He said, I just can't, you know. My attitude is I come in, I tell them, here's the script. By Friday, you will have an Emmy-winning show. Just leave me alone. And the people who ran the show, uh, uh, Tony Thomas and, uh, and Paul, uh, basically said, you know, no, we want input, we want to structure it, because uh, what's-her-name, Susan Harris, was uh, the head writer and creator of the show, and that was her, Paul was her husband. Anyway, the upshot of it is that uh, he said, I can't work under these conditions. Would you come back from Europe? And I went, well, I'm committed to doing Night Court. And they said, I think we can work that out. So they went to, Night, went to NBC and said, can he be sprung from Night Court to do the first? Meanwhile, we're, we'll get another director down the road. And that turned out to be Terry Hughes, who then did like the next six, seven years of the show. Hmm. But would you work with them? My mother was unhappy that I left the show. <laughs> but, uh, it was a great... I got in trouble because during this time when we started shooting the first episodes, the New York Times came by. And I said, collectively, the women on this show represent over 100 years of television. 
<laughs> and they saw that, and they said, what are you saying? But it actually was quite true. I mean, uh, Betty had been on since the late 40s with you know her own show and mm-hmm. you know, working in game shows. And uh, B had worked in the early 50s uh, in New York and so forth in television. Uh, Rue had worked kind of from the 60s, and so I worked with her in the 60s. And the other lady, believe it or not, who was younger than everybody else, the one who played the mother, she uh, really hadn't done too much television, but collectively they did have a long, long string of uh, shows. And uh, it was everybody was feeling their way. There was a case where they all came from different directions. B was very critical of her own performance. She constantly uh, wanted, I think, to be somebody who would be caustic with her, to, to kind of you know, get her to uh, basically beat her down. And I wasn't that kind of a guy. I never have been, and I didn't feel... That was what my job was. Betty couldn't have, she was a sweetheart, and she was very protective, if you will, of the script. She also would have everything, she'd come in Monday morning for the read-through before we'd do the Friday uh, final re- result. She'd have all her lines learned, and B would yell at her, God's sakes, Betty, you know, stop doing that. Stop, <laughs> stop being such a, you know, a, a goody two-shoes, because she'd know everybody else's lines, too. Wow. But she said, I just had to, because in the old days, she had done a show back in the late 40s on local television in Los Angeles, and she had to carry six hours of television pretty much on her own. So she just wow. said, I'm going to be ready, I'm going to be prepared. Anyway, that was good. Rue, as I said, I worked with, so I'd do a lot more with Rue, uh, because she was much more acclimated to us working together and so forth. And the woman who played uh, the, the mom, she was just happy to be there, quite honestly. So I would have, a, on occasion, I would have set twos with B, never with Betty, never with Rue, and B just, I think, wanted me to stand up to her, and I just did not want to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. again, be uh, that kind of a director who yells and screams to get their way. Yeah. I remember on one occasion... Um, Paul Witt, when I said Paul before, there was Paul Witt, and Tony Thomas ran the show with Susan Harris as the creator. Um, there was a deal where Betty, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, B wanted to do this this ending to the scene, which she used to do in Maud, and I pointed that out to her. She said, well, I want to try it anyway, and don't you tell them. What it is is you've seen that before where she kind of shoots the person with a fake gun with her finger and then blows you know that kind of off, and she did it behind the woman playing the mother's back kind of went and blew the gun. And she said, I want to want to do that at the end of the scene. And I said, fine, you know, I, let's show it to them in rehearsal. And they'll, you know, that's not in the script and I can't guarantee they're going to like it. She said, but don't say a word to them. So she does it. And there's a long pause. And Paul Witt, who gave most of the notes after collectively talking to the other two people, Su- Susan Harris, his wife, and uh, Tony Thomas went, B, I've got to tell you, that may be one of the stupidest things. And he just laid into her. And she looked at me immediately like, you told them. You, and I said, no, I did not tell them. That's his response to what you did. I told you this is a steal from Maud. You probably shouldn't do it. But from then on, it was kind of... And meanwhile, I worked two other shows with me later on wow. Dave's World and so on. She came in as uh, Harry Anderson's agent. So, And it was always one of those. I, my wife, she'd call my wife and say, I'm going to Denmark. Please tell me what to do. And in my case, it was always a It was death. I was death. It was the only actress or actor I ever had where I kind of had a very sparring relationship with. But I enjoyed... Uh, I got to tell you, she was extremely talented. She made that show. Those ladies together, I said, it's like the 1927 Yankees. That was murderer's row. They were great. And they all worked well together. And they went on, of course. And I got a... Uh, Betty won an Emmy for one of the shows I directed. Um, in which she was dating again after her husband died. She had never gone, and she went on a cruise uh, and didn't know what was going to happen. And it turned out it was very sweet and very yeah. 
interesting. The shows, the early shows we did, were all very good and got a lot of a lot of uh, very nice feedback. So, I hoped I contributed in the first season, and then mid-season they brought Terry in, and I went back to Night Court where I was scheduled to be. And you did a lot of shows on there too. I did. I did like seventy-five of those. Yeah. You know? So it's uh, I, uh, interesting. I was once honored by. The Wisconsin Educational, I think University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, wanted to have people who had gone through the educational system there, and they brought me back, and uh, it was a case where, as I was being introduced, it was, here's a man who could not hold a single job. Because <laughs> I was only going from show to show to show. But a lot of those shows, like Night Court, I was on six years, and right. Mary Hartman was three to four seasons, and, you know, it was a case where uh, if you got into that kind of a groove, it's less so now, unless you're Jim Burroughs or somebody of that ilk, Mostly, you come in and you're like one of, it's almost like the substitute teacher. You come in, the actors know themselves, the producers and writers know them, but you come in and do one, two, or three shows, and then they'll alternate and bring another director in. So it mm. kind of all has changed in that regard. It's very seldom that they have one director that spans the whole show. Right, yeah. <laughs> Now, after, I mean, you've mentioned all these shows that you, you've done, uh, and then mm-hmm. uh, come 2005, 2000 to 2008, you were working on The Sweet Life of Zach and Cody. Now, here you are, you're yeah. working with some young kids. <laughs> it's a little yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was different also in the sense that uh, it was uh, something I didn't know if I would enjoy or not. Later I did. I've got to be honest, the, uh, the gentleman in question, if you know uh, the, uh, the characters who were on the Amos and Andy show, uh, were two white guys, and one of them was um, Charles Carell. And he had a number of siblings, if you will, or a number, I should say, of, of progeny. And uh, one was Rich Carell. Rich was, I think he, his dad was 60 when he was born, so he, he did not... Uh, but Rich was brought up in kind of a lap of luxury in uh, Beverly Hills next to Harold Lloyd's estate. And, and uh, he wanted to be in TV, and where everybody else was out playing ball... He was down in the basement staging uh, TV shows. He got caught up in the um, TGIF. ABC had these you know, Friday night shows. Yep. They were all kind of semi-juvenile, but uh, nevertheless, he got to do those and in turn uh, worked his way into Disney. And what occurred was he was off, going to go off to do something else, I think either a movie or a movie of the week, and my name came up as a replacement. And that's kind of what I was doing during that time. I was not the primary director. Rich was, and good. Everybody liked him. He was fast and efficient, uh, had a great sense of humor. The kids loved him. And here I come, and I'm going, oh, boy, I'm the first director they've had who has not been this guy. But it worked out. As it turned out, my wife and I had moved to downsize from our home uh, to another um, uh, small, if you will, smaller home in uh, Woodland Hills in California. And the boys lived right down the hill. And so I'd see them all the time, and then I suddenly was doing the show. So I said, I can take you guys into work. If you're, no, 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 we don't want to go in any earlier than we have to. <laughs> but I got to know them, they got to know me, and uh, we wound up, I think, having a, it, I, they felt in good hands. When Rich had to go away, it wasn't like I was out of left field and barking at them or yelling. Mm-hmm. And so when they did the pilot, Rich also had to leave for Sweet Life on Deck, which was the boys had now grown up mm-hmm. and were on an educational cruise ship which uh, took them around the world and had lots of things. I was brought in to do the original uh, two-part pilot at the beginning. And then Rich pretty much took over the show, and at that point I kind of said, this is the end for me, I think. I'm not going to go out of my way to get too much uh, else. So that was when I retired about seven or eight years ago. But you also uh, did the the movie The Police Academy for Citizens on Patrol. I did. How was that? I mean, the the movie had been 
doing, you know, several sequels after the original. Oh, yeah. Was it, was it a little nervous going into a, a sequel, a fourth sequel, or a third, uh, third sequel? Actually, the... no, because uh, the reasoning behind that, again, was um, uh, Paul Maslansky, who was a friend of my friend Dennis Klein that I may have been talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, Dennis was a writer I worked with first on Mary Hartman, and then we did other shows together, and 40 years later, we're still friendly. Uh, he had said, Paul wants to see you, and I said, oh, that's not my cup of tea. I'd seen, I'd, not the original, but I'd seen number two and number three that had been directed by Jerry Paris. Yes. And Jerry had had a, especially on the third one, it became evident he was suffering some kind of brain tumor or brain embolism. Oh, and he died after the third one. So suddenly they were looking around for a fourth director. Um, a gentleman I knew uh, who was doing where the hard, uh, Who the Boss Is, which I had done in the first season, mm -hmm. he'd come in to take over, um, was kind of first on... Paul's list, because Paul said, I want a television director, a guy who's used to working fast and comes up with creative ideas. And um, in this case, uh, this guy was first on his list, but my friend said, you've got to see Jim. He's got a lot of things that are in common. He likes jazz and this and that, and he works fast, and he's TV, and so he's oh, fine. It's one of those meetings. I didn't want to be there. He didn't want to be there. Two hours later, after we were convinced, he said, you're hired. I said, well, what about the other guy? And he said, don't worry, I'll call him. It's it's, you know, you're the guy I want on this thing. So I felt very comfortable going in. The big problem was they were starting to shift uh, some of the characters. Some of the characters were holding out for more money. So there were also they were adding in people like Sharon Stone as the love interest. And it became a case of trying to find a way to incorporate the new people. And they had this idea that they were going to be training citizens to act as you know, liaisons of the police department. And so we had a whole new group of people there, mm -hmm. and we were shooting in Toronto. And so there were a lot of things that were kind of different. But quite honestly, I used the experience to kind of... Uh, I had done a couple of movies of the week at that point, which actually were shot faster than this was. This had a 49-day schedule, which is incredible. Wow. Yeah. Out of which, when I figured what we used in the movie, after the two-and-a-half-hour cut, we had to get it down to 78 minutes. We could have done the whole thing in about 22 days. <laughs> but it was a case where, you know, we'd do things, and then we'd say, well, that doesn't, that's not funny. Let's cut it out of the movie. And so in 49 days, we got enough material to, to complete the movie. But I never felt that I was really kind of out of my element there or in deep water regarding uh, mm -hmm. anything. The only thing I had to do was Paul was very hands-on, Ms. Lansky, uh, the executive producer, and he'd done the first three. It was his idea to do it to begin with. And he really felt compelled to get in there. And a lot of times he'd say, where's the funny bone? And he'd come down on set, and he'd go up to the actors. I don't think that was funny what you're doing. And, of course, it had been funny, and we'd all agreed it was good. <laughs> And it actually, those takes would stay in the movie. But in this case, he would get him there. So I became kind of the blocking, uh, if you have a, a blocking guard or a blocking a tight end kind of thing. <laughs> if I saw Paul coming, I'd go over and try and get him into a dialogue so he'd stay away from the cast. Wow. Uh, and so I had a very good relationship with uh, Gutenberg and a lot of the others. And in fact, on occasion, then I would use them later if they were available in TV things that I did. Mm -hmm. But I never felt again that I was, I, you know, <clears throat> it was a case where, it was winding down. They did five and six. Uh, five, six, and seven, I think, was in Moscow. And now they have an eighth that they're getting ready. Right, yeah. They're, they're, I heard yeah. that they were making a, another remake or That's, a sequel. Yeah. Or yeah, Dennis worked on that. Dennis worked on the rewrite for that or the write for that. Anyway, in this case, it was uh, uh, you know, a great opportunity for me, kind of learning on the job to do something. Uh, as interesting as when I first came there, what I didn't realize was, in television, it's more, again, you're working, as I said, with producers and writers who are, they are truly the, um, the kingpins, if you will, in television, because they're there all the time. They've created the show. 
and it's just the opposite in movies. The director is usually the one, which is fine. I had no problem taking on the responsibility. But just to show you the difference, I came along, and I'm looking at something. I'm usually a guy who likes to stand next to the camera. I don't sit down a lot. I walk around a lot. But in this case, I decided I was there, and all of a sudden I felt this bump behind me, and I turned around, and here was my director's chair was being shoved underneath me, and they said, well, do you want to sit down, Mr. Drake? And I said, uh, sure, okay. And every time, <laughs> this guy would chase me around to have me sit in the seat, and I was always jumping out of it to go talk to an actor who was standing near the camera. <laughs> but I said, that's, that's the difference with movies versus television. They really uh, you know, go out of their way to make you feel that you're the responsible person here trying to do it. But it was, again, a cooperative effort. Most of the cast... Most of the principal cast had worked on the previous three. Right. Paul was there. This cameraman was the same cameraman who had done the first three. So I felt in very good hands, very, very you know, protected under those circumstances. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Jim, I'd like to finish up with two final questions. Sure, please. Uh, taking us away from your directing and also mm-hmm. your, you know, your TV shows and everything. But when you sit back and relax, what do you enjoy watching now and in the past? And what are your favorite movies now and of the past. Wow. Um, I probably should start with the movies. I've always enjoyed comedies, but also I'm just, I'm open. I like horror. I like drama. Right now we're looking at all the screeners, of course, for the uh, Director's Guild Awards and the Academy Awards and so forth. But it's a case where oftentimes my wife will say or my kids will say, you'll go to anything, you'll see it. And I'll say, yeah, and I'll stay to the end because sometimes it gets better. They won't leave early on. (laughs) Yes, I agree with you. But there are things. I'm kind of old school. Right now with a friend up here where we are in Washington State, I get together once a month and we watch old westerns. Uh, which I kind of grew up with watching on television, didn't have much involvement with uh, because most of them had phased out. But I always loved meeting the stars, if you will, had the opportunities down the road uh, with those who are still alive, like Rex Allen and Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, to have the opportunity to say hello at least, not to sit down and have any long-term conversation. But in general, um, I liked comedies. I loved the Capra comedies. That's what's such a pleasure to have met him. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, It's a Wonderful Life, I claim I discovered, because it wasn't on, I found uh, it played a little theater in New York, and when I moved out to Hollywood, I would have a Christmas party, and I'd bring people like Carol O'Connor from Archie Bunker, Mm -hmm. and he had never seen it. He was weeping like a baby, and we'd show this on a 16-millimeter print until, of course, it was on TV forever after that, um, to get, you know, introduce them to it. And uh, it was interesting to hear Capra say, you know, I never thought it was, a, you know, again, from the standpoint of uh, financing, it cost a lot of money and it didn't make it back initially. But who was to know that it was going to do as well as it did and become, you know, part of uh, filmic folklore? Oh, yeah. But I love film noir. There are film noir festivals up here and down in Los Angeles that I go to. And then there's something called Cinecon, which has been around 50 years down in Los Angeles, right around Labor Day, in which they show... Uh, films that otherwise there's only one print of or some collector has and nobody else has seen. And I can get as many. I've counted up, I think, in starting back when I was you know, five, six years of age up till now, and I'm 73, uh, that I've seen probably close to 20,000 films. Out of 35 or 40 films that they show at that thing, I have seen maybe only one of them. And this has been going on for 20 years, so these are really obscure. A lot of them are terrible, I'm going to be honest. (laughs) It's sound, it's early sound and late silent films. But it's so interesting to see things that um, 
you know, you just never would have had the opportunity to, and it gives you ideas. Boy, if I was doing it, I would certainly steal from that or take that. Huh. Uh, that's how good. So those are the kinds of things, comedies, almost anything. But 40s, I've really kind of gotten most recently back into looking at their 40s, early 50s films. Um, and almost every year there's some, you know, great stuff that's out there, uh, Shape of Water now that's just been playing Lady Bird, I had a chance to see. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, I'm always surprised at what's out there and what filmmakers are able to do uh, given the opportunity and the you know the money they've got and CGI and all the rest of that, which I did not have um, that that opportunity, uh, and things that I watch on TV are again there aren't that many comedies, but I love uh, X Files is back on again, mm-hmm. Amazing Race. I mean there are all sorts of things that I kind of gravitate to. Once again, my wife says I don't really. Uh, you know, I watch everything. Right. <laughs> uh, a lot of stuff from you know that's on PBS, and never have gotten into certain things. If I feel it's going to be a long slog, like something like Game of Thrones, which I know I would love, but I also could not keep up with because we do a lot of traveling and mm-hmm. and a lot of other things, so it becomes difficult. But yeah. uh, I, I I love those, and and uh, that's uh, you know kind of what the the TV thing is. I had a lot of favorites when I was growing up, and it was nice to be able to meet some of the people. I once went to a funeral of the woman who was second. Um, um, she was a bailiff on Night Court. And Billy Halep, and this was Flo Halep, Florence Halep, and she was quite an actress, but she passed away, as did the lady who preceded her before Marsha Warfield came in and stayed for the rest of the series. So I went to Flo Halep's funeral, and here was the entire cast, because she had been on the first TV we ever got was in Iowa, and I, there was a show called Meet Millie. And that's, I just remembered it wasn't that great a series, but it was a fun, fun uh, show to watch. And here at the funeral was everybody from Meet Millie, and I'm running around like a teenager, wow. you know, to, to Arnold Stang and all the people going, you, you were on Meet Millie. And I remember, me, and that was the first TV I ever had. <laughs> and it's like, it's a funeral. Come on, tone it down, tone it down. But I was just in heaven to meet all these people, and, you know, I did so because I'd gotten to know Flo. Yeah. So. Uh-huh. Well, Jim, I, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, this well, thank this you. has been fascinating, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Oh, sure. My pleasure. Anytime. And, uh, yeah, if I can help out in any way, I'd be happy to do so. A big thank you going out to Jim Drake for joining us here at On Screen and Beyond. A lot of fun talking with Jim. He's got a lot of information there about all the shows, incredible shows. I mean, <laughs> how many shows uh, that he has done? Have you sat down? You didn't even know that he was the director. A lot of times we don't know those things, but he gave us a little bit of insight behind the people and the shows that he worked on. So uh, thank him very much for that. And that's it. The first episode of On Screen and Beyond of 2018 has now gone by, and we have more coming your way. I hope you're going to be joining us. A lot of great guests coming up. And uh, that's it. That's a wrap for this week. So until next week, when we once again take you On Screen and Beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care.